Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT Annual Conference, Gift Ed 22. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today we're chatting with Professor of Gifted and Talented Education in the College of Education at the University of South Carolina, Thomas Hebert. Tom has more than a decade of K-12 classroom experience working with gifted students and 25 years in higher education training graduate students and educators in gifted education. He has also conducted research for the National Research Center on the Gifted and Talented. He served on the board of directors of the National Association for Gifted Children. Tom is the author of the award-winning Understanding the Social and Emotional Lives of Gifted Students, a book on gifted males entitled Talented Young Men Overcoming Tough Times, and Exploration of Resilience, and most recently, Guiding Gifted Students with Engaging Books. Mr. Abier, thank you so much for being here. How are you today? Great. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you. Man, it's, uh, it's great to have you, and it's great to have you um, at this conference. And when I think of you and I think of your work, obviously, I think of the social and emotional lives of gifted students. As an educator, why did this aspect of gifted students strike you as fascinating to where you've poured so much time and energy and research into this? Ooh, I guess I can think back to my very early years as an educator, my my very first year of teaching, um, I left Auburn, Maine, and I traveled to Douglas, Georgia on a Greyhound bus. Um, and I, I was hired to be a U.S. history teacher at Coffee High School in Coffee County. And the first, that very first year of teaching, I met some wonderful young people who really led me to think differently about bright kids. The, um, in the first row, first seat, was a tiny, petite little woman named Michelle Oakes. She scarfed up everything I could deliver in U.S. history. She was as passionate about the administration of Grover Cleveland as I was. <laughs> she was the most conscientious young student I've Ever, ever had in class, and um, I, I was struggling as a teacher to figure out what I could do for someone as highly gifted as Michelle was, but interestingly enough, uh, she taught me a very important lesson in the three years that I was at Coffee High School, and that I will always remember on the night of graduation, uh, she walked across the stage as valedictorian, and then she handed me a, a note. And that note, in that note, she thanked me for being passionate about U.S. history and being a dedicated teacher. She appreciated that, but she said far more important to her was that one afternoon when I sat with her in my classroom and listened to her discuss the details of the impending divorce in her family. And uh, she said, 
that was far more meaningful to her than anything I ever did mm. <laughs> with Grover Cleveland or, 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 <laughs> or anything else in, in U.S. history. And so there, there was my highly gifted girl and just coming to better understand what was going on in her life beyond my classroom was, was eye-opening. And um, seated next to her <laughs> that year was a a rugged, handsome football player named Ashley Josie. Ashley had been identified as gifted in second grade. Um, and he was, um, he was the kind of kid that had a bevy of young women at Coffee High School who mm. followed each and every move he made. <laughs> and if he as much as looked in their direction, they suffered serious teenage angst. <laughs> Ashley, interestingly enough, wasn't quite as passionate about the administration of Grover Cleveland as Michelle and I were, <laughs> but he was flunking my U.S. history course and his parents were absolutely beside themselves. Um, and we were all trying to figure out what was going on um, where he wasn't living up to his potential. Well, I can honestly say I, I may never have made a strong enough connection with Ashley, but fortunately, there was somebody at Coffee High School that did, and that was Mr. Jones, the drama teacher. Mr. Jones got Ashley involved in theater, hmm. and he, he um, graduated in from Valdosta State University in Southeast Georgia and went on to, um, went on to, to Hollywood. And <laughs> I tell my students today at the University of South Carolina, I want you to dig up the movie Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, really? Ashley is the redneck state trooper that stops Miss <laughs> Daisy on the side of the highway on the way to the birthday party in, in Mississippi. He's got about, um, about a minute and a half in that movie, but I'd like to think that I played some role yeah. in getting him to, to the big time. He's alive and well, and he, um, he lives in metropolitan Atlanta. I understand he's delving into computers these days. Um, but yeah, there was, that was my first experience with the high, high ability, underachieving male. And mm -hmm. boy, oh boy, I racked my brain trying to figure out what what was going on what was what were we not doing at coffee high school to um make critical connections with kids and, and um lead lead them to you know fulfilling their potential uh, so yeah that that was year one and then a, a very very significant student uh, that same year was uh, a young man by the name of Trennis Northcutt. Trennis was, you know, I walked into that classroom every day and it was AP U.S. history and I couldn't help as I looked out at that sea of white faces how Trennis Northcutt, the only African-American student oh, in wow. the room, was feeling. Trennis was um, had a mathematical and logical mind that was just phenomenal. He was a leader on the football field. He was student body president. He his artwork won awards. 
I mean, we're talking incredible multi-potentiality. Right. Multi-talented young man like Trennis. Um, and as a beginning teacher, I, I, you know, my preparation at the University of Maine certainly had not prepared me to address the needs of kids like Michelle Oakes or Ashley Josie and, and Trennis. I did not have the, the counseling skills, but I, um, you know, would have, would have benefited from training in terms of dealing with the, um, the needs of culturally diverse, gifted kids. Mm. And, um, any, anyway, Trennis went on to graduate um, from Morehouse College and then moved on to uh, Georgia Tech. And um, today he's currently thriving in the corporate world, um, doing extremely well in the Dayton, Ohio area. So my, my years in the classroom, my early years in the classroom, I continued at Coffee High School to meet more kids like Trennis and mm -hmm. Ashley and Michelle. And there were, uh, they, they really, they helped me to realize early on that, hey, I'm not passionate. I thought I was passionate about U.S. history, but mm -hmm. I discovered I was far more passionate about adolescence and about the psychosocial well-being of the young people I was working with. So um, I called the State Department of Education at the time after three years of being at Coffee High School, and I, I said, I'm single, I'm down here in tobacco country. Um, tell me where I, where I can go um, to study this gifted ed stuff. I, I really need to know more <laughs> about this gifted ed stuff. Um, I, I can go anywhere. And the woman at the end of the phone, uh, on the other end of the line, um, said one word at the time. She said, Renzuli. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, what's, what's a Renzuli? And, <laughs> and she led me to the work of Joseph Renzuli. And um, I philosophically connected with what he was saying. In the, this was late 70s. He was obviously talking about the broadened conception of of giftedness right. and talent development. And um, so I packed my bags and headed off to grad school. And it was, it was also earning my master's degree at UConn and then moving on to a K-6 position in, in Torrington, Connecticut. I was teacher of the gifted K through six. And wow, learning, that's, that's really and truly where I learned to teach is working with elementary school kids, shifting from the high school classroom to, to an elementary situation. But boy, oh boy, needing to know more about the, social, the psychosocial needs of these very bright kids was, mm -hmm. was a critical component of my day-to-day -day, um, activity. So right. that, that proved to be very important. Wow. So, so, and I think teachers listening can really relate to some of the stories that you shared in, in terms of the work that we do within this broad scope of gifted education, I think boils down to students you've worked with that you've seen, hey, there's a need here, there's potential here, and I might play a part in accessing what that is. Absolutely. Um, so I think that that's powerful, and, and I just really appreciate you sharing those stories too. 
Um, if let's say that you know, we have a brand new teacher to gifted education, and, and they're, they're trying to soak in everything, when, when we talk really broadly about the social and emotional needs, can you summarize that of like, hey, this is what that means, especially through the lens of gifted? I might be putting you on the spot a little bit there. Um, as we think about how these kids operate, I guess I, I would want teachers, beginning teachers, to think seriously about the social and emotional characteristics, mm. traits, and, and behaviors that, that they see from day to day, and just what, uh, how we can nurture and support those positive traits, whether it be the compassion, the empathy, the sensitivity to the needs of others, whether it be um, their, their passionate interest in particular topics that are related to moral issues and their, um, and their concerns for the very complex world in which we live today. Um, the, the, just understanding that they have real serious concerns about the world in which they live, whether it's the children and the families of Robb Elementary School mm. here in Texas, or whether it's the children in Ukraine right now, or the homeless folks that we, we see in our communities mm -hmm. from day to day, and they, because they, they're so compassionate and aware, so much more aware than other kids, um, they want to make a difference. And, they, and their, those particular qualities within them enable them to, um, to reach out and, and make a difference. So mm. I'm, I'm um, a strong proponent of social action projects and community service. Mm. Do it, call it whatever you'd like, community service, social action, reaching out and doing, doing good for others, I think is probably one of the best um, strategies that we can use in, in addressing the social and emotional um, lives of gifted kids. We're providing them an outlet for those qualities their moral development is nurtured, their leadership talent evolves, um, they make connections with other kids who are passionately concerned about these important issues, um, they make connections with adults who um, value them for their work, and um, mentors as a result of that mm -hmm. evolve. Um, it's. All, and, and quite honestly, it, it builds resilience in kids. When, you, when we think of social and emotional well-being, given the adversity that some, many of our gifted kids are living through, whether it be challenges with dysfunctional family situations, whether it be um, low socioeconomic situations mm -hmm. or just even difficult communities in which they're living in, um, they, uh, their involvement in classroom projects, 
that are connecting to these social and emotional qualities, the, the um, involvement in social action kind of work, um, really helps to fill, I, I'd like us to think about it as an emotional gas tank that gets filled with mm. good feelings, positive feelings about self. And when your gas tank is full of good feelings, that only helps you to overcome the tough stuff in your life. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, those very important qualities that um, I've come to appreciate over the years um, truly make a difference. And, and of course, I'm, I'm a strong, I'm an advocate of folks out there who um, connect with the, the Dabrowski theory. Mm -hmm. Casimir's Dabrowski, Casimir Dabrowski's theory of the psychic overexcitabilities, or, the, or as I refer to them, the, the heightened sensitivities, are something that I would probably direct beginning teachers to, to investigate. Take, taking a look at um, just what that theory has to offer and mm -hmm. looking out at um, looking out at their classroom and um, making critical connections to their kids. In fact, years ago I was um, teaching in teaching a course for Baylor University and it was being delivered in Fort Worth, Texas. And All right. I had a first grade teacher um, that I will always remember. She was a, a student in the course and at the time I had teachers reading the Dabrowski material mm -hmm. and I asked them to maintain an observation journal of one child in their classroom and uh, make connections between that, that child and the theory. And Laura Izell was working with a little six-year-old boy in first grade named <laughs> Jacob. And she shared with me how um, Jacob and his mom were driving down Camp Bowie Boulevard in uh -huh. Fort Worth and he saw a homeless man with a sign asking for food. And when he saw it, he said, Mom, let's go to McDonald's and get that man a meal. Um, and she said, Jacob, we, we've got too many errands to run. We don't have a lot of time. I, I, I just can't take time to do that. And he said, that's why they have drive throughs Mom, for busy people like us without a lot of time. So needless to say, Mom listened closely, and they went to McDonald's, and six-year-old Jacob got out of the car by himself and delivered the man the meal. Wow. Um, that's, the, yeah, that's the kind of kid that, um, that keeps me going. That's, that's um, why we do what we do. Yeah, and, and I love that. And I, and I just love that you, with these stories, you, <laughs> I'm just impressed that you have these names down and these, I mean, it just says testament to you and, and your, your <laughs> ability to recall this and, and, and the meaning that it has that, that you have. Um, and it strikes me too, hearing about this, of we as teachers, we might have a teaching assignment of, hey, I'm here to teach fifth grade math, you know, and, and I've got a, um, a kid who, before they got to me, was identified as gifted and talented, and here I am, my job is to teach them math. But I, I feel like what I hear from you is, you might have students with great potential who need to build the sense of resiliency, mm -hmm. that might have these, these needs that are social and emotional, that if we don't um, tap into that, even if we do teach accelerated math well, we might be missing an opportunity to access a level of growth um, that otherwise that student maybe wouldn't have had. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Yeah, 
Okay, well, this is great. And, and this is a good seg segue into some of the things that you are talking about here at the GiftEd 22 conference. Um, in you, one of your presentations, the description says, we find ourselves living at a time of intense social unrest, economic uncertainty, unprecedented tragedies, and a mounting sense of collective hopelessness. I think that sentence alone kind of underscores the need behind here. Um, why do you think this unique time plays even more so into that unique um, social and emotional need of gifted and talented students? Whoa, it's the intensity, I guess, of so many issues that society is up against right, right now. It's just, it, it's, I mean, since pre-pandemic to present day, it, it's been a rough roller coaster ride for all of us, hasn't mm -hmm. it? Um, and I, I think young people, well, young people who are looking out at the world around them and experiencing these issues with their families are truly going to need um, support to, to understand what we're facing and, and to, um, to cope, quite honestly, mm -hmm. with, with these challenges. And um, I'm, I guess I, I'm feeling positive in that with highly intelligent young people, and this psychosocial development being at a high level uh, of, of Dabrowski-like characteristics, um, I think they will, they will serve us well. The, these are the, the young people who take on um, these challenges and, and carry out phenomenal projects within their local community uh, are the the kinds of kids that I would want to see, you know, lead, leading American society in, right. in, into the into the future and taking taking leadership positions in industry and and polit in government and um, uh, in in all all different fields in making a our country a better place. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love that idea of kind of forward thinking about, you know, this is not just meeting the needs now, it's equipping them to meet them, their needs, and hopefully as they're being the, the future leaders of our society. And, and speaking of those social and emotional needs, just something that as I was reviewing your work and preparing for this, uh, you know, a concept that I feel like I run into a lot is often the topic of social and emotional needs, and, and as you talked about um, with, that, with the presentation of it, especially right now, of students, how much does the conversation of the social and emotional needs of the teachers leading those students come into play? And it's almost as, um, it, it, have, has, that, has that been a part of kind of your experience as you're working with teachers that either addressing this maybe helps their social and emotional mm -hmm. needs or maybe not moving to the space might indicate that there's a, there's a need within them. I don't, I don't know if there's any overlap there. Um, this this happened again on my flight, my Delta flight here to Houston. I'm reminded each and every time I fly with Delta and the airline attendants announce, please secure your oxygen mask before helping others. Hmm. And I, I repeat that to teachers. You've got to take care of yourselves if you're going to take care of kids. Right. And 
Um, yes, absolutely. The social and emotional, the, the emotional well-being of the teacher is, is critical. And we really need to do more to support teachers with that. Um, during the pandemic, all of a sudden we had relaxation and mindfulness workshops, you know, whether online right. or face to face. Well, absolutely, much of that um, is, is critical. So um, stress management and, and, um, and anything related to ta taking care of self physically, mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, socially, um, if, if we're going to continue to support bright kids, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, oh, I would say it's probably important to model that for kids, to let them know that I too have to um, take, take care of myself and, and, and we want to teach that way of thinking to young people also. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I've, I've, I know that in my journey I've felt super convicted and, and also have created pathways with students mm -hmm. when I do reveal these are the things I have in place to help address those needs. So um, it, one of the, or two of the topics that you're covering here at Gift Ed involve kind of some examples of things where teachers and students can begin to move into this uh, and I'm fascinated by it um, one of those is photography mm -hmm. and you're speaking on that specifically and there's that medium is so um, readily accessible these days especially yes. compared to the past why is why is photography a great example of, of moving into this space of meeting the needs social and emotionally of, of gifted students I think photography is something I, I've discovered recently is definitely a very important component. Well, I should say cell phone photography is definitely a significant component of kid culture, yes. a, a teenage culture. Um, it, it, we'd, be, we'd be foolish not to tap into um, the, this new technology. Um, it's important to, to, their, to what they're all about from day to day. Um, it enables them to be creative. Um, it's easy. It's certainly very easy to facilitate. And um, I would say it, it, it's also non-threatening. Non and I say this, I have essentially learned that in handing a teenager or a young kid a cell phone camera and, and ask with a simple prompt, Take five pictures that represent your identity as a gifted individual. And I give them as much time as they need. And they send me, uh, they'll email me their, their photos. And I get, oh, and I point out there should be no one identified in the photos. We, we, we don't want to see people, so I end up yeah. with some um, very highly abstract responses and that are powerful and um, that definitely represent their strengths, their gifts, their, yeah. how they see themselves. And I, as a teacher, um, learn so much about where they're coming from, from that very simple prompt and that activity. First of all, they think it's cool 
They love <laughs> they love shooting the pictures. They love planning the shots. The, the, the high creative types often need extra time because they're they've got a particular spot somewhere in their neighborhood where they want to capture the sunrise, uh, you know, at, yeah. at, on a particular day. And uh, so it may take a it may take a while to get their responses, but they're very, very powerful. And of course, I have them right um, uh, along with those photos. I have them um, it essentially elaborate, well, explain, explain the photo. Um, and I have found that classroom teachers get pretty excited about the possibilities of infusing this. School counselors think it's a wonderful way uh, to make a connection with a kid that they might be um, delving into some heavy-duty stuff uh, with um, in, um, in essentially uh, a long-term in intervention uh, mm -hmm. on the part of that counselor. So counselors gravitate to it. Elementary, middle, high school teachers have turned onto it. They're seeing uh, ways of infusing it and making connections to whatever curriculum um, they're teaching. And it's um, it's and right now I use it in my graduate classes. It's the very first thing all of my students do at the beginning of the semester. Um, and that uh, those five photos from each of my grad students is something that I hold on to. And just um, the conversation from mm -hmm. those <laughs> from those photographs um, enabled me to to build community. Um, within that within that graduate class with a large group of students we don't have a lot of time in one semester you know it's 15 weeks and um, I see them for two and a half hours um, on Monday on Monday evenings for example so mm -hmm. um, I, I get to know I come to know them quite well as a result of that assignment and it's and it's the very first thing um, that I have have them send me and it's been kind of cool so um, and I've had local South Carolina teachers facilitating this and um, they're they're saying their 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 kids are really enjoying it and it's um, a good way to get get to know them and it's also a wonderful way for them to reflect really and truly on mm -hmm. who they are and where they're going in life and I love there's a simplicity to that, yes. <laughs> but but there's a great depth because I think as a teacher we've all done the, you know, welcome to class. Here's a questionnaire type deal, but that's some sort of a maybe it's formulaic or misses the opportunity mm -hmm. to access a creative potential mm -hmm. that um, that our especially our gifted population is going to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. So that that's powerful. Yeah, and and. You're kind of leveraging that medium to find something. And, and also, I feel like you're setting the expectation of the work that we do here isn't just work that we do. It's it's impacting and connected to who you are, your mm -hmm. identity. And I, I bet that mm -hmm. has a lot of value with, with, with kids in general, much less our gifted population. Absolutely. I started using this tech, this strategy as a qualitative researcher in my, in, with my, in my interviews with the participants in my studies, I would ask them, and this was back in the day when we had the tiny little Codex box <laughs> cameras, and I would uh -huh. hand them one of those, and I'd say, take a couple weeks and shoot, shoot a roll of film, give me 10 to 12 pictures that represent your identity, and we're going to 
and, and then when we meet next time, I'll have those developed and ready for us to talk about. And I, mm -hmm. would, I would go through each and every snapshot, and, um, <clears throat> and I discovered early on that I learned something about the young people that I was interviewing that I typically would not have learned through a more traditional interview. For example, one young man um, took a picture of, of a bicycle that was parked outside the university building. And I, when I had the photographs developed, I thought, oh, well, he's probably going to talk to me about his physical fitness routine. What I didn't notice was that the bike had a flat tire. And he wanted, and he said, you see that flat tire on that bike in our conversation? He says, you see the flat tire? He said, that's my learning disability. It hasn't enabled me to travel as fast and as far as I would like. Oh, man. And I thought, whoa, I don't know that I would have picked up on that in a yeah. more formal interview. So it enables, I think it provides them psychological safety in terms of sh sharing themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I've gotten rich information from young people. And I think classroom, classroom teachers will, um, would benefit from this. English teachers get very excited about the possibilities and, and the writing assignments that might be connected to something like this. Right. So right. I, I cheer on yeah. the, the, the English teachers. Absolutely. That's, that's great. And, and one of your other topics that you're discussing here is, is not just photography, but also looking at literature broadly. And I, I feel like I had a few aha moments in my journey when I really realized how powerful literature can be, mm -hmm. again, in acknowledging <coughs> that these needs of the students uh, and, and giving kids maybe some um, people to relate to. So, so why, why, from your experience, you know, why is literature an important component um, or maybe an important tool along the way of meeting the needs of, social, uh, of kids socially and emotionally? I, I think it's all about identification identifying with the main character in in a young adult novel or a picture book or it's it's about making a connection with the lessons that are learned through that main character's experience and thinking about how that might apply to my life and you know if mm -hmm. if it's a book on schoolyard bullies you know how can that young elementary school child in a classroom discussion with the teacher, walk away from that classroom with some better understanding of what bullying is all about and how they might cope with that, with strategies that have evolved in the discussion of the book uh, that they can apply to, you know, next time somebody calls you a nerd or a dork mm -hmm. or, or whatever, what, what are you going to do about that? And a, as a result of um, a good, a good conversation with kids around that picture book or that young adult novel or um, whatever. Um, I, I think books have powerful potential for making a making a difference uh, for kids. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've all we've all encountered a novel or or two that that have really impacted our thinking and, and we would want to do that with kids. And I also believe that unpacking literature with 
young people in classroom discussions with a focus on social and emotional well-being, I think part of the therapeutic value of that strategy is the fact that they have the opportunity to listen to other kids' responses in the discussion and to hear how other kids might be feeling about the challenges that they're up against. And just knowing that you're not alone, you know, that Butch Slodowski back in the second grade whipped Eddie Conley's butt just as well as, as mine, you know, that, that, that's going to make you, <laughs> you know, you, you, that's going to make you feel better. And, and you're going to let Eddie Conley know that, man, that really, I really felt better when you shared with the group that you mm. too were up against Butch Slodowski back, back in those days that, you know, that made yeah. me feel better. So they, um, yeah, they, I think that can be, that can be very, very helpful, whether small group or whole class discussion. And mm -hmm. it, it, everybody benefits from, from that in, in particular, um, gifted kids. Right. And yeah, and I love that idea. And I know it, the broad, I think one of the terms for it is bibliotherapy. I know it's not quite a, a, a therapy, but in that right. sense of kind of, again, using literature as a way to teach kids yeah. the structures that they can respond. And I love that idea of them making connections. And I feel like several of the, several of the, of the practices that I'm familiar with you advocating for that's in your work are simple, That but, but they can develop these deep connections. I remember a, it was it a business card or a oh, name yes. tag where you can write things about yourself. And, and, and you, you've got a lot of work that I think are easy entry point things to do for teachers so that kids can make these meaningful connections. Right, right. The business card was one of my favorites. It's essentially, how do you present your image to the world? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, biz, people with business cards are sending a message about, this is who I am, this is what I'm all about, uh, here's, here's my card, how do I represent myself? And so having young people, and this is a first day of school kind of activity, design a business card that represents what you're all about, who you are. And I would take those poster-sized business cards and cover the walls of my classroom with those, with those that artwork. And I left them up for a good month or two. And my ulterior motive for doing that was I wanted kids to take in those business cards and make friendship connections. Yeah. So they found somebody else in that classroom who was really into Harry Potter or gymnastics or, or whatever it was. Right. So yeah, if you could find one new friend in that classroom at the beginning of the year, uh, if, and if that, you know, if that's a good friendship, I, I think life is going to be a lot easier for for the mm -hmm. students, the teacher, and the parents. So yeah, friendship connections, I think were were critical. Yeah, and I wonder too, especially with the uh, with our students, you know, is having a structure like that in a classroom going to help them? Perhaps if they're not good at that yet, or maybe they mm -hmm. don't know how to make connections. Mm -hmm. So you have an opportunity to build that ability within them of oh, this is how I go through this process of connecting with people, building meaning with right. people. Yeah. Uh, that's again powerful stuff. Yet I feel simple things to move into. You got to be dedicated to do that. Um, so uh, okay, in one of your books too, and I wanted to come back to that was talking about talented young males in general. 
Is there any, if you're talking about these high potential students, is there anything that a, a, a gifted teacher uh, from your work here in the state of Texas who um, maybe have some words of encouragement or things that you've learned of, hey, don't miss this opportunity based off your work specifically in that realm? Interestingly, the book on the, the gifted, talented young men overcoming tough times, um, an exploration of resilience, the, interest, the fascinating finding across the five young men in that book was that there was a very, very significant teacher. I'd almost label them life-saving teachers wow. that came to their so that came to support them, um, whether it was Coach Casey, who who said to Patrick, um, "I don't want you talking to your guidance counselor any longer. I'm your counselor. I'm your social studies teacher. I'm your coach. And oh, by the way, I have a roast beef sandwich shop. On yeah, this was coastal Massachusetts. I have yeah. a sandwich shop." that I operate on the side and you're going to be working for me. I mean, that, that was wow. Coach Casey. He made Patrick, who was incredibly twice, oh, I, I, I shouldn't say incredibly, he was really challenged with mm. twice exceptionality. And, and this coach essentially made, as well as these other teachers, made these guys almost special projects. And, and there was another, a debate teacher that saved the life. And these, these young men had all undergone, had all experienced serious adversity. Patrick was, two e, was a challenge with 2E. Keith was coming from poverty and from a bully, a bullying and, and bashing. Um, the, wow. de, the debate coach got him involved in debate and drama. And he eventually um, graduated and, and moved into higher ed and was a debate coach in, um, in university life. Um, a, a, a young man in rural Kentucky, incredibly impoverished family situation, alcoholic father. There was an out, outward bound teacher in, in his life who said, there's a brand new high school that's going up and that's being built in Bowling Green, Kentucky, a, a, a magnet high school for math and science, and they're looking for the first class. They're, they're asking for students across the state to apply mm. to graduate from the inaugural class. And she said, you, um, this was Sebastian, you, Sebastian, would be ideal for that program. There was no car at home. The outward, bound oh, wow. the outward bound teacher said, I'm picking you and mom up at seven o'clock and we are driving across the state of Kentucky and you are going to go to that interview. I mean, it was life-saving teachers. He graduated from that high school. He's currently in a, um, an MD, PhD program at the University of Michigan. Just phenomenal young men coming from just horrific, horrific situations. And that very powerful relationship with the teacher made uh, was indeed the, the most significant theme across 
the, the five stories. I, I could go on. I could do three podcasts on, <laughs> on just the book alone, but I would. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I but, know we haven't got that time. But That's all right, but I think that's a great way to start to wind down here in terms of any teacher or educator listening to this, making sure that they're seeing their students as opportunities in a sense of you could have a life-changing, life-saving impact on them and where they're headed especially when we start to consider these needs that they have. So I, I will take it to our fast five questions. These are designed to okay. just get to know a little bit about you. Don't feel okay. like you have to, you could keep it short and sweet here, but uh, just so everybody listening gets a better feel okay. for, for Thomas A. Bear. Uh, they're a bit random though, so we'll okay. have some fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> Question number one, you've got a Saturday to do anything. What do you do and why? I read a good book. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the easiest way for me to chill, <laughs> to unwind from an action-packed week. Uh, yeah, delving into a, a really good, a, a really good book. Yeah, I think that's very relatable right there. Um, question two: If you had to describe yourself as a cartoon character or TV show character, who would it be and why? Mm. Um, I, interestingly enough, um, I was born the same year as Ronnie Howard. So really? I, I grew up when Ronnie Howard was on May, was in Mayberry <laughs> with, with Aunt B and, That's right. and Andy. I was right there with him. Uh, you know, I was a little Ronnie Howard. I, I had red hair and freckles just like he did. <laughs> and, um, but when he made it to happy days and I, Hung out with the Fonz. I, uh -huh. I, I was dealing with my teenage angst <laughs> at, at the same time. And um, when he began suffering from male pattern baldness, I was there <laughs> as well. So Ronnie Howard um, has a very important place in, in my tell. life, and I, I've always, uh, I've, I, I've always respected his work, and I, um, I, I share with my students how, yeah, I see myself as parallel to Ronnie <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, question number three, if you could tell an earlier version of yourself one thing about how you learn, what would you tell them? Oh, as you can see, I, I learn through stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I tell, I, I powerful. Tell, I tell stories. If, a, if an instructor in a college course or even, um, you know, someone at the pulpit in my church mm -hmm. is delivering the message through a story, I'm going to remember that far, far more than in any other um, way of delivery. So I, I would say, yeah, I, I've come to yeah. understand um, my learning style is definitely related to that. Well, I think a lot of people would connect with that for sure. Uh, question four, who has been an inspiration in your educational career? Oh, you know the answer to that one, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be here today um, if it had not been for Joseph Renzulli and, and Sally Reese. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just consider myself so fortunate to have had them um, as mentors in my life. Yeah, amazing. And uh, last question, number five. If you had to tell teachers to do one thing to develop student potential, what would it be?
provide them opportunities to delve into a, their passionate interest, something that is self-selected, something that the young person decides is important to them, um, and provide them the, yeah, really, opportunities to dig into whatever it is that they are, are turned on to and um, support them with the resources that, that they need. Um, it, it's, it's all about talent development through a, an enriched um, approach. And I think the whole notion of pursuing, pursuing a project that I get to do, that I, that I choose, um, and can share that with people who are interested in that very same topic mm -hmm. could it certainly is a powerful way for gifted kids to learn. And I wonder too, reflecting on our conversation, how maybe that might be something we don't start the year off with, but if you start the year off with, give me five pictures about who you are, True. you start to lay the foundation that mm -hmm. kids have choice and that you value that and uh, they get to move into that. So absolutely. This, uh, this is, a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. If people who are listening want to find out more about Thomas A. Bear and your work, uh, where would you send them? <laughs> I, I would send them to my e my email address. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I'd be more than happy to continue the conversation with them. Um, <clears throat> I I get lots of chuckles um, from day from time to time, and that my email address is. T A Bear at sc.edu. And when you look at that, it looks like the Bert. <laughs> so I, I say to, to teachers, there's only one Bert in the state of South Carolina, and I am the Bert. So <laughs> be in touch with the Bert at sc.edu. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Thomas A Bear, for being our guest today. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, Check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RenzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.